The chances of an agreement between the UK and the EU are rising. We've seen much more positive, as if the UK government has decided, no, we actually do want to have a deal here. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Khortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast conversation on the future of UK trade policy, Brexit, and the US-UK trade negotiations. My name is Rem Kortevech. I'm a senior fellow at the Klingendal Institute. And this podcast conversation is our next chapter in the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. I'm joined today by two excellent speakers who know everything about UK trade policy, its relationship with the European Union and with the United States. On the one end, I have Marjorie Chorlins. Marjorie is Senior Vice President for European Affairs at the US Chamber of Commerce. She is also the Executive Director of the US-UK Business Council. And then I'm also joined by David Hennig. David is the UK director at the European Center for International Political Economy and a real trade expert. Both of you, a very warm welcome. What I was hoping to do today is to talk with you about the future of UK trade policy. The UK obviously has left the European Union and it is now engaging on this new frontier of negotiating trade deals with its major trade partners outside of a European context. David, perhaps to start with you, why is the UK negotiating simultaneously with its two largest trading partners, the United States and the European Union? And what does it hope to achieve? The UK wants to be a global player in trade policy as soon as possible. Brexit is sold as being not a retrenchment from the world, but as UK retaking our place globally. That's got a few problems, which is to say that one of them is that with the EU, we need to avoid a cliff edge in terms of trade. So that's why we need to negotiate with the EU. And with the US, well, that's really the Brexit dividend in form as soon as possible. So that's what it's all about for the UK is that we're players here. We're back. How is this viewed from the United States, Marjorie? Obviously, the US and the UK have very tight trade relations, but the UK now by itself, what are the benefits or the advantages of having the UK outside of the EU as a potential free trading uh, FTA partner? Rem, that's a terrific question. And candidly, the American business community has been far more interested in seeing the UK. We would have preferred that the UK remain in the European Union, but with the citizens having voted to make this choice back in 2016, you know, we respect that. And the question is, what is the way forward? You ask the question, why are they negotiating simultaneously? I would argue it's because they have to, although we would also suggest that it would be more logical 
for the UK to sort out its ties with the European Union first, given that it does account for the lion's share of UK trade, and from there begin to build the ties with the US and some of the other key UK trading partners. But clearly, there's a political imperative here as well. What is that political imperative specifically, David? The political imperative is showing Brexit to be a success as soon as possible. In the UK, we need to see ourselves on that stage. Nothing has prepared us to not be on the stage. Trade wasn't actually a big factor in the Brexit vote, but it was assumed that trade would carry on. It's also assumed that investment would carry on, and we don't talk so much about inward investment from the US business community or indeed from other countries such as Japan. And in part, it's that inward investment that means that an EU deal is so important to us. But if you came out of the EU as we did and you just had an EU trade deal, that wouldn't really look like Brexit. You've really got to have something on top of it to show the UK moving forwards. Okay, well, let's look a little bit deeper at one end of that dual trade negotiation strategy, the EU end, so the Brexit talks, the UK-EU talks. We know that there won't be an extension of the transition phase beyond the 31st of December 2020, which leaves us more or less with six months, a little bit less, to reach an agreement. Will we see an agreement, David? The chances of an agreement between the UK and the EU are rising. The reason we say that is we spent three months kind of yelling at each other, really, at the start of negotiations. That's not uncommon in trade talks. But ever since there was a virtual summit between Prime Minister Johnson on the one hand and the EU leaders von der Leyen, Charles Michel and uh, Sassoli on the, on the other, we've seen much more positive mood music as if the UK government has decided, no, we actually do want to have a deal here. Possibly coincidentally or not, we also saw a couple of weeks ago an entry into the debate from Nissan a pretty high-profile inward investor here, uh, quite symbolic, their uh, plant in the northeast of England. And they said, without a UK-EU deal, their plant is unsustainable. I think that might have something to do with the better mood music we've seen. Do you share that assessment, Marjorie? Do you think that there is uh, equally that larger chance of a deal emerging these days? I think David's right. I do think since the virtual conversation between the UK and EU leaders, there has been more positive talk. I think the question is what happens when you really get down to the brass tacks. Now, there was an article in today's Financial Times talking about the EU potentially showing some flexibility, in particular on the so-called level playing field commitments. This is an interesting question because I'm not sure. Well, it depends on, on who you talk to, how much flexibility there really is. But I do think there is a, a desire to try to come to some sort of an agreement. The question is whether they can effectively do that by October, which is, I think, when they'd need to do it in order to have a deal in place by the end of the year. This would be record time. Let's face it, that's this is record time for a trade agreement. There's a huge amount of detail to go through, and that does put some problems in the way. There's not time, really, to work through all the issues in turn and do them in the way you would do in a normal trade negotiation. That means a lot of decisions have to be made very quickly and... I don't think either the UK or the EU are used to making so many decisions so quickly. And that's a real risk for the negotiations for the next three, four months. 
What is that risk exactly? Is that we only get a deal on the uh, broad stroke issues or that uh, a number of areas are just not negotiated on? In other words, what is the type of deal that we would then be potentially looking at? I think the risk I see is that the UK in particular just won't accept areas of detail that the EU put forward, and that puts at risk the whole deal. What's really got to happen here is the UK is going to have to accept large chunks of EU proposed text, because after all, the EU is the one with the precedent here. The UK is new to this game. That's a big ask for the UK to do. There's all manner of flashpoints that could come up in negotiating that detail. The UK has to concede in a lot of areas. We're not used to conceding. And I think the big point here on the UK side is the next four months is when we would put it in the UK, the rubber hits the road. Are we going to be able to make those decisions that we have to make in the real world? We have to put away this idea of having your cake and eating it, as the current Prime Minister said in a previous incarnation, and actually make some decisions which are painful and involve us not getting what we want. It also raises the spectre, David, that we won't have a um, conclusion to Brexit by the end of the year, that there will be a lot of loose ends. And do you think it will be actually over on the 31st of December? I think the form of international negotiations these days is that they're never really over. There are so many individual subject areas and agreements, so many rules and regulations, so much constant dialogue, whether that's on data or financial services equivalents, regulatory equivalents, UK alignment with European regulatory bodies. There are so many issues to go through. No, not all of them will be resolved. At best, you put a framework in place whereby over time you can carry on looking at some of these issues. But what you are going to get, therefore, is a big change in UK trading relations as from the end of this year. That cannot be escaped. Um, we are leaving the single market and the customs union. A free trade agreement will not cover all the areas that we have been used to having. Marjorie, from a US perspective, say we end up with something akin to what David is describing, kind of a, a limited EU-UK free trade agreement, that obviously also impacts the way in which US exporters and investors look at both the EU and the UK market. What are the things that you're watching for in uh, that agreement as it potentially emerges? Well, here again, I'm happy to agree with David because I think that we're not likely to see a comprehensive agreement by the end of the year. But from the American company's perspective, look, a lot of companies invested in the UK as a jumping off point to gain access to the single market. And the fact that they're going to lose that uh, at the end of the year, which indeed I think they will, there is concern. There needs to be at least a minimum of rules in place and plans in place to allow for continued as seamless as possible flows of trade and goods and services. So the question is how much can actually get done and how much has to be set aside for follow-on conversations? Marjorie, I've heard some talk that US investors in the UK could decide that actually with the UK leaving the single market, they could decide they don't need a European base at all and they would try and do most of their operations from the US. Do you see that as a realistic possibility? You know, my members haven't really indicated that that's a, I wouldn't say there's a general trend in that direction. We do know what we have seen in the last couple of years, obviously, is some sectors setting up more of a presence on the continent in order to be able to serve that market. 
clearly there is sort of political pressure back in Washington to uh, try to reshore manufacturing and things like that. I'm not seeing a tremendous rush back to the U.S. by exporters and investors. And is that because they're kind of waiting to see what emerges from a deal? Or is that because they're just not that worried about the impact of the Brexit talks? Oh, they're very worried about the impact of the Brexit talks. But look, practically speaking, companies try to locate as close to their customers as possible. And there is, you know, nothing is different in this particular circumstance. As I said, I think where you'll see more movement is in folks setting up shop on the continent If, in fact, the constraints and barriers between the UK and EU grow to the point where it's just more cost effective for them to actually do that. I think the preference is not to do that. But it's also the case, look, the UK as a market on its own is a fraction of the overall single market. And so while it's an important trading partner, indeed, one of our largest trading partners, the fact is, and indeed the largest receiver of U.S. foreign direct investment. The fact is that it's a market, and then you've got the single market, which is substantially larger, and obviously that's where the, the bigger prize lies. And there's an interesting read across to UK government policy, which is that over the last four years, we haven't seen a very close relationship between the UK government and large businesses and inward investors. And I think that's one of the areas where I would be looking to see change in the UK government position, where I think we will see change, is that there'll be the growing realization that actually we do need to listen a little bit more to inward investors. We need to stop, if you like, what we know as the Brexit wars of remain versus leave and start having a more mature conversation. I'm not saying that will happen immediately, but I think that is something that has to happen in the UK in the coming months and years. And I think we will start to see that. I hope you're right about that, David. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the chamber set up the US-UK Business Council a couple of years ago. It was to provide that platform for investors and exporters to be able to communicate effectively with British officials and European officials and so on. Practically speaking, I would say that it's been a mixed bag in terms of government engagement with American exporters and investors. I mean, On the one hand, they seem to be open to inputs. Indeed, we've been able to respond to consultations freely and so on. But practically speaking, when it comes to coming back and testing ideas about what is commercially viable and what is practical, there hasn't been as much engagement. Now, as you say, part of that may be just that they're doing this for the first time in a long time. Um, and so the whole idea of engaging stakeholders is perhaps something that they're just going to need to get into a better rhythm of. But I, I do hope you're right that we'll see more of that engagement going forward. Let's shift the discussion a little bit to that second leg of the UK's two-pronged approach, which is the US-UK trade talks. Now, it's interesting that before the pandemic struck, when we were still going physically to conferences, uh, there was an event in uh, the, the World Economic Forum in Davos where the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sajid Javid said very clearly that the primary focus of UK trade policy was to get a deal with the EU. And he was seen to be pushing back a little bit against this suggestion that the UK would be negotiating simultaneously. 
we are where we are today. And indeed, there are simultaneous negotiations taking place. And it leads me to wonder what the UK can get out of its negotiations with the US. But perhaps starting with you first, Marjorie, what does the US actually expect to get out of a deal with the UK? Well, I think I can tell you from, again, from a US business perspective, we're looking for a comprehensive deal that addresses all of the issues that you would typically encapsulate in a trade agreement. Practically speaking, though, as I said a minute ago, the idea of negotiating with the U.S. when you haven't actually sorted out your relationship with your largest trading partner is a bit curious to us. But we are where we are. We're seeing these negotiations go forward. And so for us, the important thing is to make sure that negotiators on both sides understand what U.S. private sector priorities are. I think it will be difficult to address some of these issues, obviously, because they do tie into how close the UK will remain aligned with the EU, especially on certain regulatory issues. But we are where we are, as you said, and so we're going to take it forward as best we can, pushing for a comprehensive deal. A mini deal isn't something that's necessarily desirable for us. But again, we really want to see where the UK-EU negotiations end up. That's interesting. It's because you say a mini deal is not necessarily desirable. What does that look like from a UK angle, uh, David? Because it seems that here the politics play a little bit more more prominently. I would say that the UK approach to a US trade deal is pretty muddled, actually. It takes in several strands, none of which are completely dominant. So on the one hand, you have the US viewed in the idealistic economic light of the sort of paragon of free trade, which I'm sure Marjorie wishes it was, but clearly hasn't been under President Trump. But you still have that kind of vision here. Marjorie mentioned the regulatory side, the kind of conflicts between the EU and the US. Well, there is a reasonably influential group of advisors in the UK who would actually see the UK leaving the EU regulatory bodies and joining the US in the rather long-running regulatory battles they have with the EU, you then have the symbolic aspects of the Brexit dividend, the special relationship. And if you like, almost last, increasingly emphasized, is, okay, yes, there should be some more opportunities. But of course, there is already a pretty open trading relationship between the UK and the US. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing in the UK right now is that because the motivation is a little bit muddled for this deal. It's very hard to move away from the criticism that is coming in, that was always going to come in. Those of us who went through TTIP were expecting some public opposition. It has largely come from UK farmers saying, we are going to be undermined in a US trade deal. But it's quite difficult to push back against because it's not really clear what the single primary reason for the UK doing this trade deal is. I'm speaking with Marjorie Chorlins and David Hennig. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the future of UK trade policy, Brexit, and the US-UK trade negotiations. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, 
Search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Marjorie Chorlins, and I'm also joined by David Hennig. Marjorie said the U.S. trade with the U.K. is a fraction of the U.S.'s trade with the broader single market. The U.K. exports three times more to the EU than it does to the U.S. Why are we then talking about a U.S.-U.K. trade deal? Well, I would jump in to say that, again, underscoring what David has said, there's a certain amount of symbolism here. There is a desire to want to capitalize on the so-called special relationship. And look, politically, in Washington, I think you have strong support for these negotiations on both sides of the aisle. And obviously, we've heard folks on the House side talk about the importance of respecting the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And so keeping a close eye on how the Northern Ireland Protocol is implemented. But by and large, there is just sort of a natural affinity for the UK and a desire to want to do a deal. I think the politics are lining up. But having said that, you know, Bob Lighthizer was on Capitol Hill last week, and he made it abundantly clear that the U.S. isn't in this just to do a quick deal, just to do a favor for their friends. They're going to hold out for a good deal. And a good deal politically in the U.S. requires some hefty agricultural concessions. And from a UK point of view, I mean, who doesn't want to feel loved and feel that we can go to DC and we'll have lots of uh, meetings and we can have some really warm words? So that's great. There is a view, which I don't think is in any way um, justified by the evidence, that maybe the UK can replace trade we lose with the EU with new trade with the US. Now, no single piece of evidence supports that, but that doesn't mean that some people don't think that. You have to look at the whole global Britain picture, whereby without much evidence, you have a lot of influential advisors to the government saying, we can make up for trade lost in our neighbourhood by trading globally, and the first stop is the US. They get a little bit defensive when you point out that the US is aiming to reshore and have less imports. But okay, we we are where we are. And I think we're just setting out here where the land lies, not suggesting that all the positions make complete sense. I think it's also the case that, look, I mean, the US may be head of the line as far as the UK goes, but we also have seen the UK now embarking on what, what looks to be a, a very rapid negotiation with Japan, They've launched uh, negotiations with Australia and New Zealand. They've begun to put together their bid to join the, the CPTPP. You know, I think in terms of uh, the drive for global Britain, they're clearly reaching out in a number of directions. And <clears throat> while I still don't think that even that combination would come close to making up for uh, whatever trade loss they might experience with Europe, nonetheless, that is the track they're on. Let's look a little bit at that, because as you mentioned, Marjorie, the UK also wants to join CPTPP. It has all these other bilateral trade negotiations ongoing. It's not just with the EU and with the US. It's been kind of easy to criticize the UK's approach to trade and saying that it's 
putting way too much hay on its fork, that it's biting off too much of what it can chew. But what is the silver lining? What is the positive story about this, David? Is this a let a thousand flowers bloom strategy on the trade front, or is this actually a really thought through strategy to reposition the UK in a global trade environment that is very much in flux? I don't think originally it is a let a thousand flowers bloom. I think there's a genuine belief within the UK government that these agreements can be done and a genuine view that we are doing the right thing by negotiating them. I think that if you were taking an optimistic view from outside, you would say what the best that could happen is that in going through those talks, the UK government is forced to take a more serious look at where our priorities lie, where our interests lie, and pick the ones for progress that seem to offer the best chance in strengthening those areas of our economy that we want to strengthen. And after all, for the UK, you know, we've got to look internally what this is going to do for our economy. So, for example, can we hold on to manufacturing where over 50% of our exports are to Europe? Can we grow our services trade globally, which seems more likely? In services, only 40% of our exports are to Europe. So we're doing better there. Can we find a way in which we protect or slightly grow or perhaps just slightly lose a little bit of manufacturing, grow services and find that actually Brexit, we confound the critics and we hold at least the economy that we've already got. That's a tough ask, but you could look at it and say, look, we're setting off down this path. We're not quite sure where we're going to on this path, but we're setting off. We'll deal with these problems as they arise. We won't have a big master plan to start with, We'll just see where we get to. It's kind of quite a British approach to things, possibly. It's also potentially a recipe for disaster. Having said that, I do think, you know, look, everybody uh, surmised that when the UK made its decision, when the referendum result came in, there would be a dramatic adverse impact on the British economy. And that didn't really materialize over the course of the last few years. And obviously, the situation has changed pretty dramatically for all of us. But I do think that probably contributes to this sense that we are going to see where this takes us. We have sort of a general notion of where we want to go. I do believe a lot of that is politically motivated. And frankly, I just think practically speaking, the Brits didn't have to negotiate a trade agreement for 40 plus years. When we first started going as the council to visit with British officials in 2017, uh, when DIT was just stood up, there was nobody on the staff, right? I mean, I realize now there are a couple of thousand people there and they do have some experienced negotiators among them. But practically speaking, they're starting out from a tougher position, from a less well-developed position. Oh, definitely. I'm trying to think of what the best case could be. I definitely agree that there could be a worst case to this, that basically we sign a lot of deals quickly that really do little for our economy or actually potentially have negative impacts. And we go backwards. I guess what we're trying to do in some ways, the experts who are looking at the UK, is try to paint an optimistic picture so that we're not just negative about the UK's prospects. Okay, we are where we are. Let's see if we can head off down a relatively better path rather than a, a worse one. You know, there is there is a possibility. Let's not all be doom and gloom, but there is definitely a considerable risk. Yeah, and I think, look, the American business community has gone from a an initial period of serious denial and a sense of, golly, maybe they'll change their minds uh, and moved pretty rapidly to a place of acceptance and planning for 
what could come next. So I think there is a hope on the part of the business community that indeed that the British will find a way forward in these various negotiations that will allow for continued free flows of goods and services and data and people and investment. And and that's where the focus is. And they also are continuously updating their contingency planning to take into account the possibility that those things may not happen. It's fascinating to watch the debate about UK trade policy from outside the UK. A question for you, David, which is the domestic element of this. The UK is now struggling with these questions about whether to follow US food safety standards or whether to continue with EU food safety standards. It's a almost a trade-off between chlorinated chicken versus level playing field guarantees that the EU is trying to impose on the UK. How does this impact the domestic debate about trade? Because trade negotiations, we all know this, we've all gone through TTIP, they bring out sensitivities as well because trade negotiations are tough. They're not, as Marjorie rightly said, they're not favors that you're doing to the other side. So how does this in this critical moment in the UK's trade history, how does that impact domestic perceptions of trade? We will know a lot more in six months' time is the simple and glib answer is it is just starting now. One of the reasons why many of us who had gone through TTIP did not want to negotiate a trade deal with the US was because we were worried it would adversely impact the UK's overall trade agenda. It would reduce the support for trade. It would increase the support for protectionism. Arguably, some of that is happening. But what we will see in the next six months is the government having to make decisions. So it has to make the decision, do we want any kind of quick deal or a deal signed with the US in the next six months, if that is even possible, if the US are up for it? We will see what kind of decisions are made with the EU Those two, you either make decisions to accept various things and to go quickly, or you make decisions to pause. You reflect the domestic debate that is going on. We've already mentioned about manufacturing. We've mentioned about farmers. Other issues could yet come to play. Animal welfare is starting to come to play. We're a great nation of animal lovers. So we look at those things, and this is what is going to happen in the next six months for the UK, decision time, and also time to leave behind a vision of the world that was constructed to support Brexit in which the UK could kind of bestride the world and global Britain would be a great new thing into here are some trade-offs and decisions you have to make. Which way are you going to turn? And how do you see that, Marjorie? I mean, do you see echoes of the UK's domestic debate in the US at the moment or vice versa? I'm curious. The, the debate about trade in this country is, if anything, more tense and fraught than it has been in a long time, in part because there's no longer an easy, simplistic divide between Democrats on the one hand and Republicans on the other, with the former focusing more on sort of protectionist measures and the the latter being more attuned to promoting free markets. It's, It's a much more muddled picture now. And I think we have in this White House, obviously, a president and his team who have a particular view about trade that is heavily protectionist, that is not in sync with Uh, where much of the American business community is, and which is feeding into a larger narrative about the benefits or downsides of globalization. 
And I think that's exactly the same thing that's happening in the UK. We have made certain choices, or I should say this administration has made certain choices about what direction to take US trade policy. I think it's fair to say that there are those of us who would like to see us move away from the heavy reliance on unilateral measures and and return to more of a focus on trying to uh, rebuild and reform the multilateral system, trying to build out, negotiate, sorry, agreements with our trading partners that are not piecemeal and, and mini deals, but that do provide for genuine commercial benefits. So the debate is playing out similarly here. It just happens that we have for the last three plus years been looking at uh, a trade policy in this country that is very heavily skewed in one direction. In the EU, we have a debate about trade as well, of course. And uh, one of our earlier podcasts, we spent looking at uh, the future of the EU's trade policy. So I'm not going to get into that here. But what I find a fascinating question is, traditionally, the UK played this role of being a bridge between the United States and the European Union. The diplomatic front in terms of security relations, in terms of foreign policy and in diplomacy, it's easy to look at the US-UK-EU trade triangle as a tug of war, say a tug of war between the EU on the one side and the US on the other side and the UK somewhere in the middle. But is there a positive spin? And perhaps I'm being much too optimistic, but is there a positive way to look at this that if the UK emerges out of this successfully, it can actually try to function as that bridge again in trade terms of trying to connect a US-focused trade approach and an EU-focused trade approach? Or is that just me in the magic kingdom thinking about unicorns? I have the scars from trying to act as a, a bridge at one point during TTIP talks. I think that in the immediate future, it is unrealistic to talk about the UK acting as a bridge. We have to establish ourselves. We have to establish trust with the US, with the EU, and other trading partners. We have to, in my opinion, not get sucked back into the long-running debates between the EU and the US about who does food right or who does technical standards right or Airbus and Boeing to the extent we can avoid getting involved in that. Try to establish our own way forward, perhaps in years to come, if we've succeeded in doing that, then we can help. But right now, I don't think it's the role of the UK to try and help. I fear, if anything, that right now we will see, we won't see, but I suspect that quite a lot of the time we actually have probably US and EU negotiators talking to each other and kind of having a joke among themselves about what the UK are saying and our attempts to play each other off against the other one. Don't think that's going to work. I think that the UK just needs to get ourselves established first. I think that's absolutely right. And look, I think there are those who suggest that one of the reasons why the UK wanted to mush ahead so quickly in a deal with the US was with an eye towards sort of playing the two off against one another or trying to demonstrate to Europe that the UK has other options. Candidly, I've never put much stock in that thought because I just don't think that's how the Europeans know what the nature of the relationship is between the UK and the US. And they also know the extent to which the UK is reliant on their relationship, their commercial relationship with Europe. I don't put much stock in, in that sort of part of the triangulation. Could the UK serve as a bridge? Obviously, we in the business community always looked at the UK as more of a liberal voice at the decision-making table in Europe. And we 
are sorry to see that voice disappear from the chorus. We have to look around and find other partners who will fill that void. None will be singularly as powerful as the UK. For us, there, there was a significant role that the UK played in the midst of the European policymaking process. And I am sorry to see that gone, but I don't necessarily see it serving yet as a bridge between the two. The differences between the US and Europe right now, frankly, are so profound and so deep-seated that I'm not sure that even with a country that is an ally to both sides, that there is a way that they could usefully play that role. I think we also have to remember that the relationship between the U.S. and U.K., while it is extraordinarily warm and long history and special relationship and all that, we do have our challenges and our differences right now. You look in terms of uh, the Brits' decision to mush ahead with the unilateral digital services tax. You see the Brits' decision initially with respect to including Huawei in the build-out of their 5G infrastructure. Obviously, that decision is perhaps now under reconsideration, whether that's as a result of U.S. pressure or not. Everybody can speculate about that. My point simply being that as much as we like to think of the U.K. as being a close friend, now that we're actually in a situation where we are sitting across the table from one another, it's not as easy for the two sides to just sort of link arms and go forward. Very challenging period for the UK, that's for sure. I have one final question for you both. And um, we're always fond of looking at British bookmakers and the odds that they have on uh, various things. And I want to ask you a betting question. Which deal is going to emerge first? The one between the UK and the US or the one between the UK and the European Union? David, you first. Right now, the EU deal looks like happening first. And Marjorie? I agree, although it's an open question what either of those deals looks like. Absolutely. And because of that, Brexit is certainly going to keep many of us occupied for the weeks and months. And uh, if David is correct, for perhaps even longer than that uh, in the near future. With that, Marjorie Chorlins, David Hennig, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with me this afternoon to talk about the UK's role in the global trading landscape, its relations with the United States, with the European Union, and the multitude of trade negotiations that it is currently undergoing. Marjorie Chorlins, Senior Vice President for European Affairs at the US Chamber of Commerce and Executive Director of the US-UK Business Council, and David Hennig, UK Director at the European Centre for International Political Economy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.